Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 109, Letters. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute at goldengatefiberinstitute.org. Well, I'm wiped out. How are you? <laughs> I made it back from Northern California safely with my son, who has an ear canal, which is currently stuffed with a really frighteningly large piece of sponge, uh, which has dried because we live in an arid climate. It has dried to looking like a little mollusk that has been exposed to the air. Uh, it's a little odd, I have to say. But he apparently can hear a little bit out of that ear. It kind of comes and goes. Of course, he may have jarred the whole system loose by bouncing around like a maniac. I finally called the doctor today and said, look, your instructions say that I'm supposed to keep him basically immobile. He's not supposed to jump. He's not supposed to play. He's not supposed to run. He's not supposed to do anything that could, you know, uh, move the delicate pieces inside his ear. And that's all well and good, but he's a four and a half year old little boy. And I know you've done the surgery before on four and a half year old little boys. What do other people do? Bungee cords, duct tape, what? And the doctor said, well, you know, it's two weeks out and he's, he's probably pretty solid now. We just really want to prevent uh, major jarring. And I said, oh, you mean like having a kid at his preschool whack him in the ear with a book? Which is what happened on Tuesday. So we don't actually know if the surgery will take or not. It's a kind of expensive experiment. But um, it was not a wasted trip. It was actually a wonderful trip. We got to see my roommates from college, who uh, one of whom I haven't seen for 20 years, one of whom I haven't seen for about 12, no, more than that, 14. And it was absolutely like picking up where we left off forget the fact that we have added husbands and children in the meantime. It was just lovely. And it, it made me feel really good because this is now one of those pieces of past history that I can look at and know for a fact that I am not dreaming. I had wonderful roommates in college and they continue to be wonderful people. And that was just spectacular. And then, even better, I got to have dinner with and spend an entire day with Heidi, our own Madame Lederhosen, who you have heard of before, who actually suckered me into going on the sea socks thing, without whom I never would have met Dawn in person. And then Heidi and her mom weren't able to go at the last minute, which was kind of tragic for me. But, but, I finally got to meet her. And that boy, you know... There's something about y'all. Every single one of our listeners who I have had the good pleasure of meeting in person just makes me all warm and fuzzy on the inside because you all are really spectacular people. And so now that I've met, you know, 15 of you, I'm just going to make a blanket generalization 
<laughs> I've been teaching logical fallacies in the uh, rhetoric class. And so, so I'm just going to make a fallacious argument here for a moment. And I'm going to say, y'all, y'all are the best people in the world. I just feel really good about that, <laughs> making that completely faulty leap in logic. <sighs> Maybe it's the wine. If you have a Trader Joe's near you and you are listening to this in real time, go to your Trader Joe's and pick up a $5.95 bottle of Chalk Creek, Chalk Creek, Chalk Canyon. It's two C words. I think it's Chalk Creek. Chalk Creek wine. Trader Joe's got a really good deal on them because a hotel chain purchased these $25 bottles of wine and backed out of the deal because they didn't like the label. Trader Joe's scooped these up at an enormous cost savings and they're passing that on to you. So you can get a $25 bottle of wine for $5.95. I kind of stocked up. It, it seemed the prudent thing to do. And so I am having a lovely small little glass, small little glass of the uh, Shiraz. Lovely, warm, warm and velvety. I'm very happy. You can tell. I'm also giddy because the kids are finally in bed. And while it hasn't been one of those days, it has been a series of long days. In fact, today was the first time that I had enough time to even pretend to clean the house. Yeah, no, I actually didn't even pretend. I really did. I cleaned the house and put stuff away. And that was truly the first time in five days that I've had time. So all of that is good, but I have not had any time to prep. I knew I wasn't going to have any time to prep. And once again, Dawn has come to our rescue. <sighs> I'm also very excited because this particular chapter was read by one of our own fiddle twist, Caroline, aka Prudence, who has recorded for us today. We really needed to replace the LibriVox version. Uh, I am still working up the list for The Scarlet Letter. Have no fear, you'll have plenty of time to record. And I, I really, this is how busy I've been. I have not knitted. I have not knitted. I have not crocheted. I have not sketched. I've cooked. But I have not done anything crafty since um, I went to Northern California. So I really have nothing crafty to report to you. I am starting a clapotee part de, because I uh, I need one that drapes a little bit more and is made of a more Tucson conducive fiber. I'm going to go with a bamboo slash soy silk slash something something. Uh, I have to go pick it out. But that is truly the only thing I can even think of that's crafty. And I have to finish those bloody socks for my father. I hope he's not listening. I don't think he's been listening to Little Women. Maybe he'll listen to Jekyll and Hyde. So I'm going to turn you over to Dawn. Because Don, Don is a platonic ideal of a friend. When you look up the word friend in the dictionary, Don's picture is there. Now you know who the picture is of. It's Don. Here she is. Well, hello, Craft Lit. It is Don coming to you one more time from St. Paul, Minnesota, on the Mississippi River Bluff, where it has been little bit nippy this last week. Yeah, we hit, I think last night, the official low actually dipped into the 40s. And while I know there are a 
lot of you that probably labor under the delusion that we already have about four feet of snow by now. It's actually not true. September is usually a very, very gorgeous month here, uh, very temperate. Actually, a lot of our harvest happens um, around September. The tomatoes come in, the melons come in, sweet corn still rolling in. We're usually getting second harvests of raspberries and can plant uh, spring greens again and get a nice batch of spring greens and spinach in in this fall time. But I have to say it's been so cold um, these last couple of weeks that I still have a lot of green tomatoes and the raspberries on the bushes in the backyard are still hanging there very green, not even a little bit yellow. So right now I'm spending a good deal of my time sincerely hoping it warms up so we can cash in on the bounty that's hanging on the vine out in the backyard. Particularly since right now I have time to actually do something with a boatload of tomatoes that would hopefully be coming my way soon. Because my two oldest kids are back at school, yay. The two-year-old uh, is over his where are they all day. We don't have to constantly have a conversation about where's Sam, where's Kate, when are they coming home, how are they coming home, when are they coming home, where are they, when are they coming home. So we seem to be settling into the two of us and our routine one more time. I'm hoping that means I'll have some more time for my crafting coming up because I've kind of been in a lull with the back to school rush and trying to convince myself I don't have to volunteer for everything someone asks me to do. I am trying to approach this fall with the year of no. No, this will be the year I actually say no so I can focus on the things that I genuinely like to do, enjoy to do, and get some satisfaction out of. And there are plenty of products. Products? No. <laughs> plenty of products. Plenty of projects I'm trying to enunciate for you today and it's not working. Instead you're getting me being all stumble-tongued. But we shall, or I shall, we shall. Come along with me, shall you? Um, <laughs> I am goofy today. I'm sorry. I think I've had too much coffee, too little food. I'll try and get back on track. Here we go. Anyway, there haven't been a lot of projects that I've made significant progress on, though I'm continuing to plug away at the rows of garter stitch on the Tompton, and I'm really excited about that project. I think it's going to be very cute. And the two-and-a-half-year-old is definitely equally excited about the project and constantly wants to see it and touch it and know if I've worked on it. And in the end, you know, he really wants to know if it'll be done tomorrow. The unfortunate answer for him being, mm, no, probably not tomorrow, maybe in a month. But pretty much likely not tomorrow. Aside from that, I've uh, done done another bit of ripping. Both of the alpaca-based projects I was working on, the uh, family adventure socks and the um, the crochet one, the hopeful crochet breaking up the pooling of the colorway, hand-painted colorway project, uh, have not worked out. And I've frogged the sock. I'm going to have to rework it with smaller needles because my gauge is off and the self-striping in the pocket pads yarns, um, the stripes were coming out like twice as wide as they were in the first sock, which drove me absolutely batty. And I am gonna have to redo it with smaller needles, which unfortunately means 
getting another pair of socks off of those smaller needles when I have time to delve into the pile behind the chair in the living room and find those socks that are on the smaller needles. <laughs> Oops. So yeah, trying not to think about that, um, was working on the crochet thing a little bit more and darn it, but the yarn was pooling in the new stitch pattern as well. So I have torn that out, tried a different stitch pattern, torn that out as well. And I'm working on a third stitch pattern, which is a scarf project um, by Annette Pettivee. And actually, I'm very hopeful about this one. It looks, it's looking like it's going to work out how I want it to work out and break up the pooling of the lighter shades and the darker shades in the yarn. And um, it also, this is a pattern that I, I had thought that I wouldn't ever do because I am not a big fan of stitch patterns and crochet that have a lot of chained bits in it. I, I just don't like it for me. I don't like how it looks. I haven't liked how it's turned out. I think it, at least for me, unless you block the bejeebies out of it, it ends up looking kind of loose and sloppy a lot of the time. And I don't have the patience for a lot of blocking. I know, throw things at me all you will. I know the miracles of blocking, but I, I just don't have the temperament for a lot of serious blocking. So I tend to avoid patterns that I know are going to need it. And uh, yeah, so I'm trying out this pattern and what I'm finding is the fuzziness of the alpaca yarn, the Araucania alpaca yarn, is making that sloppy looking chain problem go away. Uh, it looks, I like it. Let's just say that. I like it. I'm happy with it. Hopefully soon I'll have some pictures for you guys so you can see what um, is going on with that. Now that things have calmed down a little bit this fall and everybody's adjusted to some degree or the other, I'm hoping to get at some design projects I've had bopping around in my head that would be really nice to get out of my head to make room for other stuff. When I, when I have a design thing in my head, I don't know if it's like this for you guys, um, I think about it all the time. And, you know, I'm in the car scribbling notes on every spare scrap of paper that I can find or post-it notes all over the house or whatever, calling and leaving myself voicemails when I'm out if I don't have something to write on. Um, so it's just good for me to have some dedicated time to get it down on paper because then I can actually start working it up and deciding if it's going to be viable or not and then move on to something else and hopefully have a few million less scraps of odds and ends of bits of paper everywhere on every surface of everything in my house because right now with the, the colder weather that has come into Minnesota I'm also kind of changing up you know my cooking regimen I've started baking bread again and we're pulling things like soups and stews and chilies and enchiladas back into the dinner rotation which means I'm also leaving myself notes all over the place about oh yeah let's make this this week or don't forget to make that or look for a recipe for x y and z which you know listening to myself talk about this makes me think that I need a system that's not post-it note based <laughs> perchance I need to create a central message board for myself <laughs> or to I don't know carry a little book of some sort along with me so that I can jot everything in one place. Hey, there's a concept. Not very tricky. Yet somehow, to this point, beyond my grasp. Yet another sad, sad story 
in my mommy, brainless, unable to remember anything for 30 seconds life. Someday, someday I will pull it all together again and then, woohoo, you watch out. I will turn it into Productivity Central. <laughs> Which, <laughs> those of you with older kids are probably rolling around on the floor laughing right now, aren't you? Uh-huh, I can hear you. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? Knock it off. Let me have my little delusion, okay? Makes me feel better. Uh-huh, so there, okay. <laughs> In the meantime, let's get back to Little Women. Because uh, last time we visited, we got the big bomb dropped that Joe, in fact, is not going to Europe, and Amy is. So we've got the contrast of devastated and excited, and the two of them each trying to comfort the other without being, you know, snarky. And in the midst of it all, I really think we have Louisa May Alcott giving us just a fabulous bit of characterization um, in the way that she has developed both Amy and Joe's characters and, ah, uh, what am I trying to say? How their pros and cons, their strengths and weaknesses to this point have developed to handle this situation, because really this is kind of the crux of it for the two of them. It is really the crossroads with one of them moving on and one of them staying behind, and there's a lot that's going to happen to determine the rest of their life at, at this point. And ooh, aren't you excited to see what happens next? Because I know I am. I, you know, okay, that brings up something really interesting that I've been thinking about as I've been reading through and listening to Little Women now at this point in my life as, you know, a mid-30s mom of three uh, versus the, the first couple of times when I read Little Women, which um, were, you know, late elementary school into junior high. I don't think I read Little Women in high school. I think the last time I, think the last time I read Little Women, I was um, probably in eighth grade. And I remember... The first times I read Little Women just being so engrossed in the fairness and unfairness of everybody's life and um, almost gossipy about, oh my gosh, can you believe that? La, 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 la. Um, tied up in all the little foibles of the girls' lives and, like I said, the fairness and unfairness of it all and um, who got what they deserved and who was treated, mistreated. And uh, this time, reading through Little Women is such a different experience. They seem like such more well-rounded people, and I spend a lot more time um, admiring their perseverance and their personas, and especially um, some factors of the book that don't stand out. I mean, really, Marmee is not in the book all that much, but she's a constant presence throughout the whole thing and you know father as well they physically they don't talk and they're not in a lot of the scenes but just the way Louisa May Alcott has constructed the story and the storyline they are really a constant thread that runs through the whole thing um, and is a gentle guiding force to the structure of the story but also the the structure of the girls themselves and I I spend a lot more time thinking about that, um, looking at my kids and thinking about being less of a upfront um, directing force in their life and more of a kind of in the background supportive 
external structure, if you understand what I mean. Um, I wasn't expecting to find that in Little Women, but there you go. Changing my parenting style for me. So, enough of me chit-chatting about me. Uh, Little Women, Chapter 31, here you go. Our Foreign Correspondent. Chapter 31, Our Foreign Correspondent. London, dearest people, here I really sit at a front window of the Bath Hotel Piccadilly. It's not a fashionable place, but Uncle stopped here years ago and won't go anywhere else. However, we don't mean to stay long, so it's no great matter. Oh, I can't begin to tell you how I enjoy it all. I never can, so I'll only give you bits out of my notebook, for I've done nothing but sketch and scribble since I started. I sent a line from Halifax when I felt pretty miserable. But after that, I got on delightfully, seldom ill, on deck all day, with plenty of pleasant people to amuse me. Everyone was very kind to me, especially the officers. Don't laugh, Joe. Gentlemen really are very necessary aboard ship, to hold on to or to wait upon one. And as they have nothing to do, it's a mercy to make them useful. Otherwise, they would smoke themselves to death, I'm afraid. Ant and Flo were poorly all the way, and liked to be let alone. So when I had done what I could for them, I went and enjoyed myself. Such walks on deck, such sunsets, such splendid air and waves. It was almost as exciting as riding a fast horse when we went rushing on so grandly. I wish Beth could have come. It would have done her so much good. As for Joe, she would have gone up and sat on the main-top jib, or whatever the high thing is called, made friends with the engineers, and tooted on the captain's speaking trumpet. She'd have been in such a state of rapture. It was all heavenly. But I was glad to see the Irish coast and found it very lovely, so green and sunny, with brown cabins here and there, ruins on some of the hills, and gentlemen's country seats in the valleys, with deer feeding in the parks. It was early in the morning, but I didn't regret getting up to see it, for the bay was full of little boats, the shore so picturesque, and a rosy sky overhead. I never shall forget it. At Queenstown, one of my new acquaintances left us, Mr. Lennox, and when I said something about the lakes of Killarney, he sighed, and with a look at me, Oh, have you e'er heard of Kate Kearney? She lives on the banks of Killarney. From the glance of her eye, shun danger and fly, for fatal's the glance of Kate Kearney. Wasn't that nonsensical? We only stopped at Liverpool a few hours. It's a dirty, noisy place, and I was glad to leave it. Uncle rushed out and bought a pair of dogskin gloves, some ugly thick shoes and an umbrella, and got shaved a la mutton-chop the first thing. Then he flattered himself that he looked like a true Briton. But the first time he had the mud cleaned off his boots, the little boot-black knew that an American stood in them and said with a grin, "'There ye har, sir, I've given him the lightest Yankee shine.' It amused Uncle immensely. Oh, I must tell you what that absurd Lennox did. He got his friend Ward, who came on with us, to order a bouquet for me. And the first thing I saw in my room was a lovely one with Robert Lennox's compliments on the card. Wasn't that fun, girls? I like traveling. I never shall get to London if I don't hurry. The trip was like riding through a long picture gallery full of lovely landscapes. The farmhouses were my delight, with thatched roofs, ivy up to the eaves, latticed windows, and stout women with rosy children at the doors. The very cattle looked more tranquil than ours as they stood knee-deep in clover, and the hens had a contented cluck, as if they never got nervous like Yankee biddies. 
such perfect color I never saw. The grass so green, sky so blue, grain so yellow, woods so dark. I was in a rapture all the way. So was Flo, and we kept bouncing from one side to the other, trying to see everything while we were whisking along at the rate of sixty miles an hour. Aunt was tired and went to sleep, but Uncle read his guidebook and wouldn't be astonished at anything. This is the way we went on. Amy flying up. Oh, that must be Kenilworth, that gray place among the trees. Flo darting to my window. How sweet! We must go there some time, won't we, Papa? Uncle calmly admiring his boots. No, my dear, not unless you want beer. That's a brewery. A pause. Then Flo cried out, "Bless me! There's a gallows and a man going up." Where, where? Shrieks Amy, staring out at two tall posts with a crossbeam and some dangling chains. A colliery, remarks Uncle with a twinkle of the eye. Here's a lovely flock of lambs all lying down, says Amy. See, Papa, aren't they pretty? Added Flo sentimentally. Geese, young ladies, returns Uncle in a tone that keeps us quiet, till Flo settles down to enjoy the flirtations of Captain Cavendish, and I have the scenery all to myself. Of course, it rained when we got to London, and there was nothing to be seen but fog and umbrellas. We rested, unpacked, and shopped a little between the showers. Aunt Mary got me some new things, for I came off in such a hurry I wasn't half ready. White hat and a blue feather, a muslin dress to match, and the loveliest mantle you ever saw. Shopping in Regent Street is perfectly splendid. Things seem so cheap. Nice ribbons, only sixpence a yard. I laid in a stock, but shall get my gloves in Paris. Doesn't that sound sort of elegant and rich? Flo and I, for the fun of it, ordered a handsome cab, while Aunt and Uncle were out, and went for a drive. Though we learned afterward that it wasn't the thing for young ladies to ride in them alone, it was so droll. For when we were shut in by the wooden apron, the man drove so fast that Flo was frightened and told me to stop him. But he was up outside behind somewhere, and I couldn't get at him. He didn't hear me call. Nor see me flap my parasol in front, and there we were, quite helpless, rattling away and whirling around corners at a breakneck pace. At last, in my despair, I saw a little door in the roof, and on poking it open, a red eye appeared, and a beery voice said, "Now then, mum." I gave my order as soberly as I could, and slamming down the door with an "Ay, ay, mum," the man made his horse walk as if going to a funeral. I poked again and said, "A little faster." And then off he went, helter skelter as before, and we resigned ourselves to our fate. Today was fair, and we went to Hyde Park, close by, for we are more aristocratic than we look. The Duke of Devonshire lives near. I often see his footman lounging at the back gate, and the Duke of Wellington's house is not far off. Such sights as I saw, my dear, it was as good as punch, for there were fat dowagers rolling about in their red and yellow coaches. With gorgeous Jeemses in silk stockings and velvet coats, up behind, and powdered coachmen in front, smart maids with the rosiest children I ever saw, handsome girls looking half asleep, dandies in queer English hats and lavender kids lounging about, and tall soldiers in short red jackets and muffin caps stuck on one side, looking so funny I longed to sketch them. Rotten Row means Route du Roi or the King's Way, but now it's more like a riding school than anything else. The horses are splendid, and the men, especially the grooms, ride well. But the women are stiff and bounce, which isn't according to our rules. I longed to show them a tearing American gallop, for they trotted solemnly up and down in their scant habits and high hats, looking like the women in a toy Noah's Ark. Everyone rides, 
old men, stout ladies, little children, and the young folks do a deal of flirting here. I saw a pair exchange rosebuds, for it's the thing to wear one in the buttonhole, and I thought it a rather nice little idea. In the PM to Westminster Abbey, but don't expect me to describe it, that's impossible, so I'll only say it was sublime. This evening we are going to see Fector, which will be an appropriate end to the happiest day of my life. It's very late, but I can't let my letter go in the morning without telling you what happened last evening. Who do you think came in as we were at tea? Laurie's English friends, Fred and Frank Vaughan. I was so surprised, for I shouldn't have known them but for the cards. Both are tall fellows with whiskers. Fred handsome in the English style, and Frank much better, for he only limps slightly and uses no crutches. They had heard from Laurie where we were to be and came to ask us to their house, but Uncle won't go. So we shall return the call and see them as we can. They went to the theater with us, and we did have such a good time. For Frank devoted himself to Flo, and Fred and I talked over past, present, and future fun as if we had known each other all our days. Tell Beth Frank asked for her and was sorry to hear of her ill health. Fred laughed when I spoke of Joe and sent his respectful compliments to the big hat. Neither of them had forgotten Camp Lawrence or the fun we had there. What ages ago it seems, doesn't it? Aunt is tapping on the wall for the third time, so I must stop. I really feel like a dissipated London fine lady writing here so late, with my room full of pretty things and my head a jumble of parks, theaters, new gowns, and gallant creatures who say, ah, and twirl their blonde mustaches with the true English lordliness. I long to see you all, and in spite of my nonsense, am, as ever, your loving Amy. Paris Dear girls, in my last I told you about our London visit, how kind the Vaughns were, and what pleasant parties they made for us. I enjoyed the trips to Hampton Court and the Kensington Museum more than anything else, for at Hampton I saw Raphael's cartoons, and at the museum, rooms full of pictures by Turner, Lawrence, Reynolds, Hogarth, and the other great creatures. The day in Richmond Park was charming, for we had a regular English picnic, and I had more splendid oaks and groups of deer than I could copy, also heard a nightingale, and saw larks go up. We did London to our heart's content, thanks to Fred and Frank, and were sorry to go away. For though English people are slow to take you in, when they once make up their minds to do it, they cannot be outdone in hospitality, I think. The Vaughans hope to meet us in Rome next winter, and I shall be dreadfully disappointed if they don't, for Grace and I are great friends, and the boys very nice fellows, especially Fred. Well, we were hardly settled here when he turned up again, saying he had come for a holiday and was going to Switzerland. Aunt looked sober at first, but he was so cool about it she couldn't say a word. And now we get on nicely and are very glad he came, for he speaks French like a native, and I don't know what we should do without him. Uncle doesn't know ten words, and insists on talking English very loud as if it would make people understand him. Aunt's pronunciation is old-fashioned, and Flo and I, though we flattered ourselves that we knew a good deal, find we don't, and are very grateful to have Fred do the parley-vooing, as Uncle calls it. Such delightful times we are having, sightseeing from morning till night, stopping for nice lunches in the gay cafes, and meeting with all sorts of droll adventures. Rainy days I spend in the Louvre, reveling in pictures. Joe would turn up her naughty nose at some of the finest, because she has no soul for art, but I have, and I'm cultivating eye and taste as fast as I can. She would like the relics of great people better, for I've seen Napoleon's cocked hat and gray coat, 
his baby's cradle and his old toothbrush, also Marie Antoinette's little shoe, the ring of Saint-Denis, Charlemagne's sword, and many other interesting things. I'll talk for hours about them when I come, but haven't time to write. The Palais Royal is a heavenly place, so full of bijouterie and lovely things that I'm nearly distracted because I can't buy them. Fred wanted to get me some, but of course I didn't allow it. Then the Bois and Champs-Élysées are très magnifique. I've seen the imperial family several times. The emperor, an ugly, hard-looking man. The empress, pale and pretty, but dressed in bad taste. I thought purple dress, green hat, and yellow gloves. Little Nap is a handsome boy who sits chatting to his tutor and kissed his hand to the people as he passes in his four-horse barouche with postillions in red satin jackets and a mounted guard before and behind. We often walk in the Tuileries Gardens, for they are lovely, though the antique Luxembourg Gardens suit me better. Père Lachaise is very curious, for many of the tombs are like small rooms, and looking in one sees a table with images or pictures of the dead, and chairs for the mourners to sit in when they come to lament. That is so Frenchy. Our rooms are on the Rue de Rivoli, and sitting on the balcony, we look up and down the long, brilliant street. It is so pleasant that we spend our evenings talking there when too tired with our day's work to go out. Fred is very entertaining, and is altogether the most agreeable young man I ever knew, except Laurie, whose manners are more charming. I wish Fred was dark, for I don't fancy light men. However, the Vons are very rich and come of an excellent family, so I won't find fault with their yellow hair, as my own is yellower. Next week we are off to Germany and Switzerland, and as we shall travel fast, I shall only be able to give you hasty letters. I keep my diary, and try to remember correctly and describe clearly all that I see and admire, as Father advised. It is good practice for me, and with my sketchbook will give you a better idea of my tour than these scribbles. Adieu, I embrace you tenderly, votre ami. Heidelberg, my dear Mama. Having a quiet hour before we leave for Bern, I'll try to tell you what has happened, for some of it is very important, as you will see. The sail up the Rhine was perfect, and I just sat and enjoyed it with all my might. Get Father's old guidebooks and read about it. I haven't words beautiful enough to describe it. At Koblenz we had a lovely time, for some students from Bonn, with whom Fred got acquainted on the boat, gave us a serenade. It was a moonlight night, and about one o'clock Flo and I were waked by the most delicious music under our windows. We flew up and hid behind the curtains, but sly peeps showed us Fred and the students singing away down below. It was the roman most romantic thing I ever saw, the river, the bridge of boats, the great fortress opposite, moonlight everywhere, and music fit to melt a heart of stone. When they were done, we threw down some flowers and saw them scramble for them, kiss their hands to the invisible ladies, and go laughing away, to smoke and drink beer, I suppose. Next morning, Fred showed me one of the crumpled flowers in his vest pocket and looked very sentimental. I laughed at him and said I didn't throw it, but flow, which seemed to disgust him, for he tossed it out of the window and turned sensible again. I'm afraid I'm going to have trouble with that boy. It begins to look like it. The baths at Nassau were very gay, so was Baden-Baden, where Fred lost some money and I scolded him. He needs someone to look after him when Frank is not with him. Kate said once she hoped he'd marry soon, and I quite agree with her that it would be well for him. Frankfurt was lovely. I saw Goethe's house, Schiller's statue, and Daneker's famous Ariadne. It was very lovely, but I should have enjoyed it more if I had known the story better. I didn't like to ask, as everyone knew it or pretended they did.
I wish Joe would tell me all about it. I ought to have read more, for I find I don't know anything, and it mortifies me. Now comes the serious part, for it happened here, and Fred has just gone. He has been so kind and jolly that we all got quite fond of him. I never thought of anything but a traveling friendship till the serenade night. Since then, I've begun to feel that the moonlight walks, balcony talks, and daily adventures were something more to him than fun. I haven't flirted, Mother, truly, but remembered what you said to me and have done my very best. I can't help it if people like me. I don't try to make them, and it worries me if I don't care for them, though Joe says I haven't got any heart. Now I know Mother will shake her head and the girls say, Oh, the mercenary little wretch. But I've made up my mind, and if Fred asks me, I shall accept him, though I'm not madly in love. I like him, and we get on comfortably together. He is handsome, young, clever enough, and very rich, ever so much richer than the Lawrences. I don't think his family would object, and I should be very happy, for they are all kind, well-bred, generous people, and they like me. Fred, as the elder twin, will have the estate, I suppose, and such a splendid one it is. A city house in a fashionable street, not so showy as our big houses, but twice as comfortable, and full of solid luxuries such as English people believe in. I like it, for it's genuine. I've seen the plate, the family jewels, the old servants, and pictures of the country place, with its park, great house, lovely grounds, and fine horses. Oh, it would be all I should ask. And I'd rather have it than any title such as girls snap up so readily and find nothing behind. I may be mercenary, but I hate poverty and don't mean to bear it a minute longer than I can help. One of us must marry well. Meg didn't. Joe won't. Beth can't yet, so I shall, and make everything okay all around. I wouldn't marry a man I hated or despised. You may be sure of that. And though Fred is not my model hero, he does very well. And in time I should get fond enough of him if he was very fond of me and let me do just as I liked. So I've been turning the matter over in my mind the last week. For it was impossible to help seeing that Fred liked me. He said nothing, but little things showed it. He never goes with Flo, always gets on my side of the carriage, table, or promenade. Looks sentimental when we are alone and frowns at anyone else who ventures to speak to me. Yesterday at dinner, when an Austrian officer stared at us and then sent something to his friend, a rakish-looking baron about ein wunderschönes Blonschen, Fred looked as fierce as a lion and cut his meat so savagely it nearly flew off his plate. He isn't one of the cool, stiff Englishmen, but is rather peppery, for he has Scotch blood in him, as one might guess from his bonny blue eyes. Well, last evening, we went up to the castle about sunset, at least all of us but Fred, who was to meet us there, after going to the post-restant for letters. We had a charming time poking about the ruins, the vaults where the monster tun is, and the beautiful gardens made by the elector long ago for his English wife. I liked the great terrace best, for the view was divine. So while the rest went to see the rooms inside, I sat there trying to sketch the grey stone lion's head on the wall, with scarlet woodbine sprays hanging round it. I felt as if I'd got into a romance sitting there, watching the Mekar rolling through the valley, listening to the music of the Austrian band below, and waiting for my lover like a real storybook girl. I had a feeling that something was going to happen, and I was ready for it. I didn't feel blushy or quaky, but quite cool and only a little excited. By and by I heard Fred's voice, and then he came hurrying through the great arch to find me. He looked so troubled that I forgot all about myself and asked what the matter was. He said he'd just got a letter begging him to come home, for Frank was very ill. So he was going at once on the night train, and only had time to say goodbye. I was very sorry for him, 
and disappointed for myself, but only for a minute, because he said as he shook hands, and said it in a way that I could not mistake, I shall soon come back. You won't forget me, Amy. I didn't promise, but I looked at him, and he seemed satisfied. And there was no time for anything but messages and goodbyes, for he was off in an hour, and we all miss him very much. I know he wanted to speak, but I think from something he once hinted, that he had promised his father not to do anything of the sort yet a while, for he is a rash boy, and the old gentleman dreads a foreign daughter-in-law. We shall soon meet in Rome, and then, if I don't change my mind, I'll say, yes, thank you, when he says, will you please? Of course, this is all very private, but I wished you to know what was going on. Don't be anxious about me. Remember, I am your prudent Amy, and be sure I will do nothing rashly. Send me as much advice as you like. I'll use it if I can. I wish I could see you for a good talk, Marmy. Love and trust me. Ever your Amy. End of chapter 31. Okay, wasn't that fun? Letters! We just got a whole chapter full of letters. It makes me want to write letters to all, to everybody that I know, because, wow, could you imagine getting these wonderfully detailed accounts of what is going on and such a trip as this? You know, I need to write more letters. I really do. But, aside from that, you know, the other thing I found really great about this chapter is even though all of this is from Amy's perspective and it's her her letters back to her family I found myself picturing the responses of the family as they were reading the, the various letters and about what was going on and so while they're technically not present in the chapter they really are they they carry they carry through very well I think <laughs> and really, <laughs> wouldn't you just die? I I really <laughs> would love to be able to see or hear Joe's reaction to that very last letter, the end of the very last letter where Amy says, and if he asks me, I shall say yes. What do you think she did? What do you think Joe did? Did she freeze? Did she like go pale and faint? No, this is Joe. Of course she didn't go pale and faint. <laughs> But did you just start ranting and raging or, or uh, what was the reaction? I would just love to have that part filled in. Not to mention, can you imagine Mr. and Mrs. March? Here your daughter is over in Europe and you're just so nonchalantly reading this letter. And all of a sudden she's like, and guess what? I think I shall get married. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'd have a heart attack. I think I would have a heart attack right there. But, you know, thinking, thinking about it, they don't have instant communication. So I suppose that's how the business of their lives is held up until, you know, it just it just really is. You find out things way after the fact and you don't have instantaneous input like we're used to these days. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. So the stage is set. Here we are. Amy's in Europe. Everyone else is at home. She's having a fabulous time. She might get married. And uh, next week, you will be on to chapter 32. <laughs> Don't you want to know what happens? I'm not going to tell you. You have a good week. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.
please remember to support the people who support Craftlet. Please go to Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C R A F T L I T, all one word, blogspot, B L O G S P O T, or at craftlit.libsyn.com. Libsyn is L I B S Y N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.